Lord, for the rest of the day, I'm going to and fill in the blank with some outrageous punishment. And you and I both know none of those three uh, uh, challenges are even possible, right? There's no way that a child's going to go the rest of the day and not say a word. There's no way it's going to last for the entire day. And there's no way you're going to do whatever it was you said you were going to do. Don't make them burdensome. But have expectations, have rules that are reasonable, that are rational. My youth group says, well, yours aren't always reasonable. That's a different talk for a different time. If you're in the position of authority, don't be so burdensome that others don't want to respect your authority. There's no reason to be on a power trip, as some would say. There's no reason to be someone who goes around boasting in the position. There's no reason to go around trying to keep others under your thumb just for the sake of doing that. Because remember, Romans 13 and verse 1 says there's no authority except from God. So first of all, those that are in authority handle it responsibly. But number two, those that are under authority of others must submit to it appropriately. We must submit to it appropriately. Again, Romans 13 and verse 1, <clears throat> the remainder of that verse says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities let every soul be subject to the governing authorities church that begins as parents instructing our children right making sure that our children understand what it means to do what's asked of them to do what's taught of them i think we see it a lot of times today when there's a disagreement between a child and a teacher and I'm walking down a fine line here, I understand that. But there's a, a, a temptation to get on the side of our child every time and never think that what the teacher is saying perhaps has some merit. But rather to, to teach our children to be able to submit to authorities. It begins at home, it follows to the classroom, it extends into church, it goes into the workplace, then it goes into society, and I'm afraid at some point it's going to come back full circle and cause all kinds of problems. It certainly can cause problems in the kingdom of God, right? To not understand the submission to authority. The Bible talks about raising up our children, disciplining our children, punishing our children, doing things to help them to understand what it means to be subject to authority. I heard a story one time about a um, parenting class, and there was a couple that had come for counseling, and a little child that was there that... The mom and dad had said, we can't make the child behave at all, but we've taken an approach where we never tell the child no or stop. We don't say anything that's negative. So we never use the words no or stop. Instead, we choose to redirect. And they were, while they were in the counselor's office, they noticed that the counselor had a, a display of swords and knives that he was a, a big collector of. And the counselor said, well, let's see how this plays out. <laughs> As the child walked around the room and he went and he grabbed some of the knives and began to run around the room with the knives and, and he just smiled at the couple who finally, okay, okay, stop, no, as the child was running. There's a time and a place for no. There's a time and a place for stop. There's a time and a place for, for discipline. When you start to look through the Bible, I think that we can see the examples of punishment. I think there are some, though, still that would submit that sincerity should be enough to avoid punishment. It's letter B. That sincerity should be enough to prevent punishment. But we know that's not the case. In John chapter 4 and verse 24, the Bible says that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit, in sincerity, but also in truth. They must worship him in spirit 
and in truth. And so there's things that we've got to do to make sure that we don't uh, just go through life thinking that if we do things sincerely, no matter what the details of it are, that everything's going to be okay. In Acts chapter 26, if you'll open up there with me, we see Paul, and he's standing and he's on trial, and he's giving account of his life from the time that he was young. He's giving an account of the things that he did when he was against Christ. And in Acts 26 and verse 9, Paul says, Indeed, I myself thought that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, church, what do we know about that? Should Paul have been doing things against Jesus of Nazareth? No, he should have been following Christ from the time that he was a child. He should have been following the Christ from the time that he was a young adult and doing these things. But he says in verse 9, I thought, I believed, my conscience told me that I needed to oppose Jesus of Nazareth. Church, do you have those friends? I don't go to church because I believe that I'm closer to God when I'm in nature. I don't go to church because my conscience won't let me because there's too many hypocrites at church. I don't want to go to church because it's my opinion that I need to have just more of a personal relationship do you see the problem? All of those statements include the phrases, I believe, I feel, my conscience says. Paul says in Acts 26 and verse 9, I believed that I was supposed to oppose Jesus of Nazareth. Did it with a clear conscience. Paul drug Christians into prison. He beat wives. He beat husbands. He stood there while they stoned Stephen, put him to death for preaching the word of God. And Paul standing there saying, Amen, stone him. He is preaching Jesus and I am against Jesus and why was Paul against Jesus? Because he thought he was serving God. Did it with a clear conscience, he said. Verse 10, he said, This I also did in Jerusalem. Many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue. And I compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted even them to foreign cities. In Acts 23 and verse 1, you go back just a couple of chapters. And in Acts 23 and verse 1, Paul, as he's beginning to give this defense, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. But y'all know the story of Paul, right? He was on the road to Damascus, the light shone around him. He was able to understand that he wasn't doing what God wanted him to do. He became blind, as it were, and he was led into Damascus. Ananias came and, and preached the gospel to him. And Saul, at the time, was baptized for the remission of his sins, became a Christian, and realized from that day forward, he wasn't supposed to be opposing Jesus, but rather preaching Jesus to others. But the point of all this is from the very beginning, Paul did it all with a clear conscience. Church, I would submit to you that Paul was lost. Amen. Do y'all agree to that? Before the road to Damascus, Paul was lost. Y'all aren't really agreeing with me. Yes? He was killing and persecuting. Y'all think he wasn't lost when he was doing that? Yeah, he was lost. You can't kill and persecute Christians and be a Christian. Paul was lost. He was going to hell. But he didn't think he was. Did you read what we just read? He said, I'm standing before you, counsel. I had a clear conscience. Chapter 26, I'm telling you, I believed in my heart that I must do things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. I thought I was A-OK. -okay. 
but he hadn't submitted himself to the ultimate authority, which was God. Let her be sincerity is not enough to avoid punishment. Well, how do you know that, Michael? I'm glad you asked. Number two, we can look in the Bible and find examples of life not being fair. The first one that comes to my mind, I don't like this example, is in 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you're not familiar, or you can't remember it this morning, turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 6, and it's the story of Uzzah and the Ark of God. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, they're moving the Ark of God out of Abinadab's house. And so, church, if we were going to have to move some chairs, just for example, something that would never take place here at Seven Oaks, but if we were going to move some chairs this afternoon, does anybody have any suggestions on the easiest way to move some chairs? And you would have some suggestions, wouldn't you? Maybe we use these dollies that are over here. Maybe we drag them. Maybe we scoot them. Maybe we stack them. But you'd have some suggestions, but all of us would have a common goal, wouldn't we? We want to make moving the chairs as easy as possible. So here in 2 Samuel, they're going to move the ark of God, and they're going to move it some distance. And so, um, anybody have any suggestions on how we should move the ark? And in verse 3, they had some suggestions. They said, I've got an idea. Let's set the ark of God on a new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, they drove the new cart and they're driving the cart with the oxen, and it's a, it's a new cart, and they're doing the best that they can. And in verses 6 and 7, things are going great until they got to Nachon's threshing floor. And when they got there, Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God, and he took hold of it because the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died by the ark of God. Sincere, wasn't he? Tried to come up with an easy way to move the ark. Tried to prevent it from being smashed into thousands of pieces. Tried to do what he thought was right. Sincere, but he was punished. Why? Because the Old Testament requirement that the ark be carried by slaves and placed upon shoulders of the men of Levi, the family of Kohath. It had to be done a certain way. These are the instructions. This is how you move the ark. Not on a cart pulled by oxen. Number two, he touched the ark. Numbers 4 and verse 15, the penalty for touching the ark was death. And Uzzah touched it, therefore, church, his punishment was death. And if you would have been there, I shouldn't say that, I don't know what you would have said. If I would have been there, and I saw Uzzah diving to save the ark, and then him immediately be struck dead, you know what I would have said? That's not fair. That's not fair. He had good intention. That's not fair. He was sincere. You know what God said? These were my commands. Second example. Uh, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 through 28. An example here is of Moses and the promised land. Moses and the, promisings, and the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, if you want to read there with me, 23 through 28. <clears throat> Moses said, Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds. I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes toward the west and the north and the south and the east and behold the land. But he commanded Joshua and encouraged him and strengthen him 
For he shall go over before this people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you will see. Moses was told that he would not be entering into the promised land. The same Moses that had led the children of Israel out of Egypt, that had led them through the, the, the wilderness wandering for 40 years, the same Moses that had done so much good for God, the same Moses that saw the burning bush and, and literally told God, send, send anybody but me to Pharaoh's house, that same Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land. Why? Numbers chapter 20. The people were thirsty. They were complaining. God told Moses to speak to the rock and it would produce water. But church, do you remember what he did? He struck the rock. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must, and I think this was part of the problem too, must we deliver water out of this rock. Moses lifted up his hand and with his rod he smote the rock twice. Must we as if Moses were bringing the water forth. Church, I don't know what you would have said, but if I were one of the children of Israel that had followed Moses through the wilderness for 40 years, and he said, guys, that's as far as I can go. Y'all go the rest of the way, I've got to stay. You know, what, you know what I would have been yelling? That's not fair. That's not fair. But God said, this is what my plan is. Let her see, Ananias and Sapphira will move quicker. Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11, Ananias and Sapphira sell some land. In Acts 5, verse 1, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part <clears throat> and laid it at the apostles' feet. And then if you remember the rest of the account, it appears that there was under some pretense that they had sold the land and brought all the money and gave it to the church. It was their land. They could have given whatever part they wanted to give, but they lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, to Michael that sat on the third row at the congregation there uh, and who saw these people come in and give money to the elders of the church and then immediately be struck dead for it, <clears throat> you know what I would be saying? Well, that's not fair. That's not fair. But I wouldn't know the whole story. The fourth example, the man with one talent. You remember this account, Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. There's the man with the five talents, the one that got the two, and the one that got the one. And, and, and the, the, the Lord, the one who gave them the talents, he went away, and he came back home. And the one that had five church, he now had ten. And the one that had two, he now had four. And the one that had one, he had two. And it, No. What about the man that just got one? He had one. But hey, he said, listen. Here's the good news. I've still got it. <laughs> I didn't waste it. I didn't go and spend it on stuff. I didn't blow it. I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't invest it in some risky investment and lose everything. I've still got it. And, and for me, who would be standing in the crowd watching that, I'd be going, he was faithful with your one talent. He held it for you. But that's not what happened, is it? You keep reading there in verse 24. Then he who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you had not sown, gathering where you didn't scatter seed. I was afraid. And so I went and I hid your talent in the ground. And look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and I gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received it back my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him, and give it to him who has ten talents. 
church, you and I have to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that sincerity is enough to avoid punishment. But rather, we've got to make sure that we live the kind of lives that please God. So, Michael, you, you talk about all these things, and in all four examples, you said you also thought that life wasn't fair. So what's the point of all this? Well, well what if life was fair? What if life really was fair? Number three, I would submit to you we should be proud that it's not, and praise God for that. Why? Letter A, first of all, because all have sinned. Luke told me this morning, he thinks Romans 3, 23 must be my favorite verse because I use it every time I preach. And I'll be honest, it probably is one of my favorite verses because it keeps me grounded and it reminds me that I'm no better than anyone else and that in terms of our sinfulness before God, church, we've all got things we need to overcome. Amen? We've all got things we need to overcome. Romans 3 and verse 21 says, Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and all believe. There's no difference. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Go back to number 2, example A. That's not fair. Example B, that's not fair. Example 3, it's not fair. Example 4, it's not fair. Now here we are in Romans 3 and verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Extrapolate that means none of us are worthy of heaven, but I want to go to heaven. Well, for you to go to heaven, that would mean that life would not be, church, fair. And all of a sudden, Michael, the guy up here that's been screaming all morning about how life isn't fair, now here in Romans 3.23, I'm saying, oh, I don't want it to be fair anymore. I don't want to get what I've earned. I don't want my punishment to be what I deserve. Life isn't fair, church. Praise God. All have sinned. And if all have sinned, let her be, then who can be saved? Because if life was fair, we would all be destined to hell. Matthew 19, verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Then who can be saved? But Jesus answered and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So if it's possible for all to be saved, then I guess I need to try to be saved. But I've got a problem, and church, y'all do too. It's letter C. What about my past? What about my past? I want to be saved. I want to be a Christian. I want to be able to go to heaven someday. But you don't know the things in my past. What about my, my past? What can be done about that? And the good news is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Paul lists all the wicked stuff that the people there at the church had done. I'm glad I wasn't present that day because I've got a feeling Paul went around and started pointing. <laughs> Notice how I'm pointing up and not at any of you. And started pointing. Some of you were thieves. Some of you were liars. Some of you were drunkards. Some of you extortioners. Some of you fornicators. Some homosexuals. Some. And he points out all the sins of the church. Don't you think there were some there reading the letter that probably weren't Christians yet? Don't you think there were some there reading the letter that hadn't been baptized for mission of their sins because they were worried about their past? And Paul said, these were the kind of people y'all were. 
But he says in verse 1, But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, Paul told him, Guys, guess what? Good news. You were lost, but don't worry, because life isn't fair. You've been blessed, you've been redeemed, you've been washed. And Psalm 103 and verse 12 tells him that as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. If life were fair, letter D, then God's perfect son would have not been crucified. If life were really fair, we, meaning mankind, all the way back into the Old Testament, would have kept God's laws. Would have been obedient. It goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? Would have not sinned. Would have not found ourselves lost. Would have not had need of a Savior to come and to die on the cross. Do you think God ever wanted to scream out, this isn't fair? When he had to watch his son hang in agony on that tree so that you and I could have the hope of an eternity in heaven someday. Letter E, if life was fair, eternal life, death rather, if life was fair, eternal death would await us all. Eternal life would be unavailable. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. In Romans 3.23, all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. So if life was fair, you and I would have the hope of eternal death. But life isn't fair and we should praise God. And that's your final blank on your handouts this morning. Thank God, praise God, life isn't fair. If you're here this morning as one who struggles from time to time with the unfairness of life, I hope you didn't interpret this morning's sermon or tonight's sermon on me trying to uh, defend that or to uh, change your mind about that. I, yeah, life isn't fair. I don't have a good explanation for it. But our goal this morning and the message this morning, the invitation this morning, is for all of us to take one step back and to realize that maybe, just maybe, we don't want life to truly be fair because it would be a, a, a very sorrowful day of judgment for each of us. Now, if you're here this morning, you've never put on Christ in baptism for remission of your sins, you've never become a Christian, or, or perhaps you have in the past, but you're not living a life that's faithful to God, what does your day of judgment look like? What's fair to the person talked about in Romans 3.23? What's fair to the person that hasn't obeyed the commandments of God? What's fair to the person that's rejected the sacrifice of God's only son hanging on the tree? My prayer this morning and, and, and my desire is for each of us to leave here being faithful Christians to God. If there's some response that you need to make this morning to make that be the reality, I pray that you'd do so right now while we stand and sing. has been there all before let him in let him in there he is gone let him in the holy one jesus christ the father's son now to him your heart.
let him in. If you wait, he will depart. Let him in. Let him in. He is your friend. He, your soul, will sure defend. He will keep you to the end. Let him in. Now admit the heavenly guest. Let him in. He will make for you a feast. Let him in. He will speak your sins forgive. And when earth ties all around, he will take you home to heaven. Let him in. You may be seated. Again, want to welcome you if you're visiting with us. Invite you to come back anytime you'd have the opportunity to. Uh, services tonight will be at six o'clock. Wednesday night Bible study will be at seven o'clock. Uh, we had uh, 111 in attendance for Sunday school and 156 for our worship service. And uh, we want to appreciate all the people who substituted this morning for those teachers that are sick and those that are out of pocket uh, for quarantine reasons and things like that so we want to appreciate everybody that stepped in for that and and Michael for putting together such a good lesson on short notice when when Tyler fell ill so I appreciate everybody that steps up at times like that <clears throat> uh, Terry Wise has been announced uh, Terry Wise and Debbie Simpson have been released from the hospital we have others who've been experiencing difficulties that have been uh, released also um, Leah Cope Moyers, we have been announcing 